the reason that you're seeing this sort of tripartite split now in the French electorate among Marine Le Pen, you know, presumably sort of Jean-Luc Mélenchon and Macron is because, um, you know, because he's, he, he staked out that center territory. He took from the center left, took from the center right. And then what you have left are, are voters, you know, on the extremes. In the spring of 2017, Emmanuel Macron upended France's political system by breaking ranks with the socialist administration and running for president as the leader of a new party that bore his initials, En Marche. Five years after that victory, Macron has again triumphed against Marine Le Pen in the runoff of the presidential race. To be sure, turnout was historically low and Le Pen climbed from 34% of the vote to 41.5%. Yet. Macron is the only French president in 20 years to win a re-election bid. Furthermore, his towering standing in the French political landscape seems matchless. The two traditional governing parties, the center-right Les Républicains and the social democratic Parti Socialiste, are both in utter shambles, whilst their French competitors, Le Pen's Rassemblement National and Jean-Luc Mélenchon's La France Insoumise, are not perceived by most voters to be credible governing alternatives. With the field wide open, for now, for Macron's lock on the presidency, what's next for the country? Will the near future see the beleaguered right and left rebuild themselves? Will Macron's second term be more of the same? Now, to discuss these questions and more, we are joined this week by New York Times Magazine contributing writer Elizabeth Zorowski and veteran correspondent of all things French, John Litchfield. This also happens to be our finale of season four, but do not worry. We will be back in September. Listen, listen in to the end of the episode for a hint of what's next for the podcast. And as always, please rate and review on Common Decency on Apple Podcasts and send your comments or questions either on Twitter at UndecencyPod or by email at UndecencyPod at gmail.com. And please, if you're feeling generous, consider supporting the show through our patron page at patreon.com forward slash UndecencyPod. Now, enjoy the show. To have this conversation on the French election, we are so glad to be joined by two correspondents of French politics, I guess, among other things, of course. Um, we have in Berlin, we have Elizabeth Sorowski. She's a contributing writer at the New York Times magazine, and she's been publishing some fantastic articles over the past few weeks. Um, including a very insightful article on the state of the French right, I guess, um, which is called France Far Right Turn, which is a, um, a, lot, a lot of people were gawking about the great article in, the, in Vanity Fair about the new right in America. I think that's probably the closest thing you'll be able to read in English on the state of a new right, so to speak, in French and France. On the other side of the line, in Normandy, we have John Litchfield, who's joining us, um, John Lichard is a veteran correspondent. He was notably the man for the Independent in Paris for a very long time. He's a regular writer these days for many publications, uh, and especially Unheard, where he's been publishing many very insightful articles over the past few weeks, and also The Local. Um, John, welcome back. Uh, we had you with us a few months ago, where the talk of a conversation was... Um, Zimur, 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 Zimur. It was all about Zimur. And um, six months straight, six months after, um, is this a triumph for Macron? Um, you know, is that is that the main tale of the tape? Is the story that just Macron has has beaten them all? I, yes, I mean, I think I think that does need to be said. Um, you know, people are saying it, but it, it seems to me that the reaction, somewhat in France, but also in the British and American press, has been almost disappointed mm. in some way. Macron won. There was a sort of expectation of calamity, maybe, for France, a, a sort of, not exactly a wishing on France what happened in, in the US and Britain in 2016, but a belief that somehow that was inevitable and this was going to happen, even though the polls have been pretty clear that, that Macron would win, but mm. not by this amount. Um, but he, he, even now, a lot of the commentary is suggesting, yes, Macron has won, but the you know, it's disguising huge problems for France, of course. You know, all countries have huge problems. 
but um, and you know I agree with some some of the things that are being said about the problems that lie ahead for Macron, mm. not just Macron, but all I think countries in the next three or four years. But I think we do have to stop and say, yes, this was an extraordinary achievement. He's the first president to be re-elected for twenty years. He's the first president in some ways ever to be re-elected without having um, lost power first in the in the parliamentary election in the whole of the history of the Fifth Republic, despite having had the most troubled mandate of any president, arguably. So, yes, it is an extraordinary achievement. And what, you can argue that it's yeah. circumstances that partly did it, but it is an extraordinary achievement. What also makes it extraordinary, I think, is the fact he he hardly campaigned, I think it's fair to say. He only kicked off his campaign pretty much a month ago, a month and a bit. Um, and it's actually quite striking. If you ask people, maybe even in Macron's rallies, what they were looking for in his campaign for a Macron second term, I think the only policy item that would come to mind is maybe increasing the pension retirement age, legal age, from 62 to 65. But even that one was pretty unpopular generally across France. So he, he's essentially won on, on his name only, Elizabeth. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I would, um, I would have to have to agree with that. Yeah, he didn't campaign very much. And um, I would generally, you know, agree with, um, with, with John's evaluation of, um, of Macron's victory. And, you know, if you think about um, what he has just presided over for the last five years, a pandemic, inflation, war, uh, you know, several really horrible terrorist incidents, mm. that sort of thing. And he, you know, he was responsible uh, or he was he was in power uh, during during all of that and still managed um, to be reelected with with a pretty generous margin. Um, not only that, but, you know, in the first round of voting in the election in early April, on April 10th, you know, much was made of how Marine Le Pen improved her score from five years ago and Jean-Luc Mélenchon improved his score from five years ago. But so did Macron. And in fact, he you know, his score um, rose by a greater number of points in the last five years than than Marine Le Pen's did. So, you know, I think that speaks that gives him that speaks to a certain momentum that he you know, that he has managed to maintain. Um, and certainly it is, I'm sure, you know, it, it, it is name driven. It is it is sort of personality driven. I think it's probably contextually driven, also given given what's happening in the world right now, that uh, that people would like to stick to a you know sort of centrist, known, proven leader, um, um, that sort of thing. But um, yeah, given that the the party system is uh, the traditional party system is somewhat in disarray, you sort of have. Um, have this this traditional party system being replaced essentially by these big names. So so that is what's what's keeping him afloat certainly. Yeah, and let's um, try to focus a little bit more on the the result of the election mm-hmm. itself. In a in a recent, in a very insightful recent piece for National Review, uh, Kevin Williamson argues that. Um, there's something very similar happening in, in France and in America, namely the stratification of the electorate along um, uh, educational attainment and class lines. Um, you know, he argues that uh, in both countries, you're, you're seeing a uh, reactionary populist bloc on one side. This was Marine Le Pen in France and a, and a, and a technocratic progressive bloc on the other hand, uh, which is Macron's. Uh, is this an oversimplification in your view? Was this was this very much the, the runoff vote, uh, an election uh, between the haves and the have-nots, or is this uh, kind of oversimplifying matters a little too much, Elizabeth? Uh, well, you know, if you look at the data, that's in France at least. I think you know the the U.S. case is probably a little bit more complicated just because of the party system in particular and because it's a bigger country. Um, but um, in France, you know. Yeah, okay, it's a little bit of a simplification, but but more or less, yes, that's accurate. I mean, you have Macron essentially being elected by this, uh, what they call, uh, what some are calling the bloc élitaire, yeah. right? The sort of elite, elite bloc. And um, the, his vote very much falls along uh, socio-professional lines and also, and also generational. And that's maybe sort of a different, <laughs> different issue. Um, but, but yes, I think that's true. And, and not only is it true, but he... You know that is very, pretty clearly, explicitly his um, his strategy. He has always said, you know, I'm neither left nor right, ni gauche ni droite, and what that allows him to do is to appeal to sort of you know uh, elite voters who once would have been either center right, center left, bring them together, and that's a very sort of solid electorate. Uh, 
John, I just wanted to say something because I think Elizabeth just referred to a great book by um, Jérôme Sainte-Marie, um, which I forget the title of, but that's where he coined the term bloc élitaire versus a bloc populaire. It, it, are we in this kind of strange situation where in the past, left and right would be able to largely cross across, sorry, cut across classes um, where you'd have, you know, some of the wealthy on the right, some of the wealthy on the, on, on the left, um, more working class voters on the right, more working class voters on the left. And now essentially we have seen, um, we no longer have a sedimentation, so to speak. We have some kind of a, a cake form with different classes voting for different um, different candidates. Um, is it, is this is this unusual? How far back do we have to go back? Go do we have to go back to Louis Philippe maybe to find such a, a situation? <laughs> I, I don't agree with that at all. I mean, I, I think it's a, a caricature of the situation. Obviously, obviously there is some truth in it. And if you look at the the Macron vote versus the Le Pen vote last Sunday, yes, Le Pen got sixty seventy percent of people in the poorest um, uh, groups, and um, she. Got bigger scores in some of the sort of poorer areas, um, ex-industrial rural areas, but um, you know the, the fact that it isn't an elite versus um, popular uh, um, situation in France. You have a large part of what would could could be considered elite in terms of their wealth and education who were supporting Zamor at one stage, or a big chunk of them anyway. Um, and you, you, you know, there are people in rural France where I live, and there are even in, in the in the poorer parts of France who are still supporting Macron. You know, he gets twenty percent of the working class vote, or, or more, or more than that. He got something like thirty percent. So it's not not really block versus block. I mean, I think a much more accurate and finally, I think, helpful way to look at what has happened in France is, is split into three blocks rather yeah. than two, and that there's elements of the. Um, elite and these elements of popular classes in all those three blocks, um, more popular people in the two extreme blocks, if you like, this sort of scattered radical left, and there is a nationalist right, mm. and then you have the, the sort of Macronian block in the middle, which also encompasses part of the old centre-left and centre-right. Um, and I think that is essentially how you explain what happened on Sunday, because had it been popular versus elite, then Le Pen would have won clearly, um, but she didn't because part of the one of the two, if you like, populist blocks—one on the left and one on the right—felt more a lot more numbers on the left felt they should support Macron to keep Le Pen out mm -hmm. than they wanted to sort of do it to the elites. So it, it is different. It's different to the U.S. where I don't think that, that the the vote breaks in that way. It's different mm -hmm. from the Britain where I don't think the vote breaks in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a kind of potentially dangerous situation to have the country divided almost exactly in three. If you yeah. look at the uh, the vote in the first round, it was like 32% for the left, 32% if you include the centre-right on the in the Macron camp um, for, for the centre and about 32% for the radical right. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why the, the parliamentary elections are going to be very interesting and complicated. Yeah. You'll have like, three blocks competing and not one has probably enough power in itself to, to command a majority easily. Uh, we can come back to that later. So, yeah. I, you know, I, I think the elite versus popular thing is definitely part of the situation, but it misrepresents how complicated the situation is in France. Elizabeth? Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with that to some extent. But on the other hand, I think that the reason that you're seeing this sort of tripartite split now in the French electorate among Marine Le Pen, you know, presumably sort of Jean-Luc Mélenchon and Macron is because, um, you know, because he's, he, he staked out that center territory. He took from the center left, took from the center right. And then what you have left are, are voters, you know, on the extreme. So there's been some observation like, oh, you know, you see all these voters in France now voting for extreme left, extreme right. Have voters in, in France become more extreme? Well, no, it's just that they those extremes are visible and the center is less visible because they're all in, in the Macronist uh, block now. So I think that that's something that, you know, that it's it hasn't just sort of happened that way, that Macron has has made sort of a political offer. Uh, that's what he's gotten. And in five years, when Macron is, you know, is done, you may see. You know, you may see, of course, a realignment. You may see a sort of rever reverting to some of these more sort of classical ideas of left and right, which, by the way, still, you know, still exist, of course. So when you see surveys that are done about, um, you know, about values among the electorate in particular, um, you know, I, I saw a survey that was done in, in January about, um, you know, looking at voters sort of 
uh, economic liberalism and ec- versus anti- economic anti-liberalism mm. and cultural liberalism versus cultural anti-liberalism. And, and, and those, those values still very clearly come, come through. So, so it's not that the left and right, uh, you know, divisions don't still exist. They do. It's just yes, that, you know, the way that politicians are playing, are, are, are playing with it is that they're able to sort of group them together in, in different ways. Well, it's, on the tripartite um, point, it's interesting because I was going to make a point about how um, the polarization, political cleavage in France had been the past few years, mainly between the Macronist bloc and the nationalist right. But I think the point I'm going to make still holds with the inclusion of the Mélenchonist um, left, which is we have a situation in France where it seems the only governing party that will not rock the boat too much is the Macronist centre. Um, <clears throat> now, the cleavage was between with Le Pen, but also works with Mélenchon again, which is Macron says we are the reasonable centrist Europeans, liberals, add whatever word you, word you want to add on top of that. And we are faced with the um, chaotic, nationalist, anti-European, whatever you want to add to that, to that definition. Um, that is the new political cleavage of our time. But isn't there an issue that you say this is the new... We all kind of agree that the, it's one of the main political cleavages in France right now, and it's much more important than the old left-right debate is to us nowadays. But isn't there an issue which is, if we accept that is the cleavage... We also have to accept that one day Marine Le Pen or her successor or Jean-Luc Mélenchon or his successor will one day have to take power. And it seems like they are not governing parties. They do not have the uh, institutional experience. They do not have the people that would be able to hold a government together. They do not have the institutional backing. Is there an issue where we accept the new cleavage is between those, 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 those lines, those fronts, but also realize we probably would not want the alternative to exist because we don't think they'd be able to govern? John. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of that, Francois, and I think that is the danger of the present situation. I mean, you have a situation where, you know, France loves to change its government every five or used to be every seven years or, or so on. Um, now it's kind of hard for them to do so. And in yeah. a sense, that's what uh, weakens the claim I made at the beginning. This was a great triumph for Macron. In a sense, yeah. Ma- Macron uh, was the only alternative for, for, for continuing something like the status quo. Um, and I suppose the sort of anti-risk element in the end um, benefited him. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that that is right, that you, you know, this, here's a country that likes to change, that likes to alternate every so years. It's now had the same people in power, will have had the same people in power for 10 years, that the, the wish for an alternation, for a change in 2027 is going to be very strong. Yeah. And uh, whether the sort of Melanchonist far left can by then or hard left can by then have created a sort of, uh, you know, something like approaching the majority, I doubt. I think it's much more likely to be a, um, a strengthened movement of the nationalist right, which will not, I believe, be read, led by Marine Le Pen, nor will it, I believe, be led in terms of electoral offer by Eric Zemmour. I think the yeah. person to watch is, is Marion Marichal, um, Marine Le Pen's niece, who's moved over to the to the Zamora's camp, and I think in, it has done so in the hope that she can emerge as the leader of this stronger party or movement of of the nationalist right, which will encompass the Zamora movement, maybe parts of the Le Pen movement, and parts of the scattered centre right Republican. And I think that is going to be the interesting development in French politics over the next five years, and it's quite possible that she or someone who leads that movement could win it next time, which would then completely transform the post-war consensus in France, um, whether it would be more extreme or, or less extreme than the, the Marine Le Pen offer is open to question. In some ways, I think it would be, it would certainly be more attractive to people because it would hide some of the more radical elements of Le Penism. But to me, right. from me as a pro-European point of view, I think that would be an extremely dangerous development. Elizabeth, is France a one-party state? Um, is France a one-party state? Um, well, <laughs> I mean, again, I sort of think that you're going to see these division or the sort of more traditional divisions reassert themselves. I mean, I yeah. actually, you know, this I actually spoke about this topic uh, with Mario Marichal yeah. uh, when I interviewed her last fall. And, you know, she will talk about this sort of bloc élitaire and bloc populaire. And, 
you know, the point that she um, actually made, and it's not just her making it, it's, you know, it's all sorts of other um, operatives and political scientists and, and the people that she, you know, that she works with, right. is that, first of all, that the Bloc Populaire is much more heterogeneous than your Bloc Elitaire. So that's why, you know, they believed, first of all, that Marine Le Pen would never be able to get a majority. And second of all, the idea that, you know, one of the sort of so-called extremes, again, we're, we're simplifying yeah. a little bit, but just for the sake of discussion, one of the so-called extremes would be able to actually garner enough voters to uh, cross a 50% line is, you know, is, is unlikely. And so she actually, um, you know, she actually doesn't really, she doesn't really believe in that division. And if, you know, I can say, if, you're, if we're going to watch what she's up to in the next five years, I think that what her, her goals will be is to, try to reassemble a much more sort of traditional looking uh, right-leaning coalition yeah. of, you know, right-leaning working class voters along with your sort of more uh, more um, conservative urban bourgeois voters who, who, who can be brought together on much more sort of traditional kind of conservative, um, conservative cultural, cultural values. So again, I, I, I I, I, it may look that way right now that France is sort of a one, you know, one state party, but I, I would question uh, what that's going to look like in five years, if there's not going to be some kind of re, realignment and re, reorganization of, of coalitions, let's say. Because what you're describing here, I think, is to a large extent the pitch that Zemmour was trying to make to Marine Le Pen voters saying, you are stuck with Le Pen. She can't win because she needs to have a kind of broader appeal including kind of yeah. bourgeois, um, more centrist, conservative voters. Um, and has she felt to that extent? Has she, has she improved at all? And I think this is an opportunity to talk about the kind of a general landscape on the right. There's a legislative election coming up in, in a few weeks' time, which will be an opportunity for all parties to take their revenge on Macron, to, to try something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also is an opportunity for different parties and different political families to reunite or not. And on the right, it's quite chaotic because historically, the dominant force, obviously, on the right was Les Républicains, UMP, RPR, whatever name they had, the, the Gaullist party. And they've been completely trounced. They haven't even made it to a 5% threshold and therefore haven't been reimbursed by the state for, for their campaign. Um, uh, Le Pen ended up beating Eric Zemmour quite considerably, but also lost, again, quite considerably to Macron. And on top of that, you have this kind of strange feeling that right-wing ideas and far-right ideas have never been this popular in France. And yet, politically, the right still seems very divided. How do you think it's going to work out with this legislative election in the back, but also more long-term? Do you also think that Marion Maréchal has the, the face, the name perhaps as well, to reunite this um, uh, this fractured uh, right wing um, landscape, Elizabeth. Um, <laughs> that is, um, let's see. So, it, it, so how, sorry. So the question is, how how will the right fare in the yeah. like? How well, how can the right fare in the legislative build, collapse, reunite? You know, I mean, I think on the one hand. Um, it's absolutely true Zemmour was not able to do that. Um, I think, you know, of course, one could question why why anyone would have thought that he would have been able to do that in the first place, right? I mean, he's very much sort of a creature of the eighth arrondissement of Paris. He's an, he's a you know, he's a he's a writer, he's a journalist, he's worked at Le Figaro for for decades, mm-hmm. um, you know, and he had a lot of name recognition on TV. But but you know, he certainly was not able to sort of recuperate this um, this working class population. I would say that that's probably not true for Maria Marshall, mm-hmm. of course, that she has quite a stronger sort of bona fides with with the more sort of um, you know, however you want to refer to it, with a working class electorate, with a more rural electorate, with a you know, with um, with an electorate uh, sort of geographically in the south and in the east, uh, that sort of thing. So, so certainly it sounds possible. On the other hand, you know, um, I, I think there's a there's still uh, um, an open question about the effect of the name of the name mm. Le Pen, right? I mean, certainly the sort of historical associations of it. I mean, you have to say that given 
Saturday's results, Marine Le Pen getting getting you know 41 percent in the in the second round, that there has been kind of a weakening of the historical associations uh, with the Le Pen name, and certainly its generation as well. I mean, that's my understanding is that you have a lot of older voters who would not who still would not vote for yeah. Le Pen, and that that may change in the coming you know 10, 15 right. years. Um, but um, but still, you know, still, it's a question: is she is she the person who can who can do that? I, you know, I don't know, or if it's even possible. But if it is possible, will it be her? I, you know, I think that's still unclear. John. We had you on with um, Anne Elizabeth Moutet a few months ago when the Zemmour phenomenon had just started, um, and there was a lot of enthusiasm around around his campaign or, or, or fear, depending on who you ask. Um, and there was a feeling that Marine Le Pen was done. She had been crushed in 2017. She had also been badly beaten in the latest regional elections. So it was a feeling that it was done. It was all over. But I remember you were telling us, careful, she is quite strong with a working class base. In my little village in Normandy, a gilet jaune village, she remains very popular. And I'm not entirely sure Zemmour has, will be able to tap into that electorate. Um, that was pretty, pretty well spotted. Um, so... How do you see the landscape evolving? I know um, Zemmour is asking for a union, union nationale of a right-wing landscape to field some kind of um, united uh, tickets in the legislative election. Um, how do you see this whole situation evolving? Yeah, I did say that at that time, mm-hmm. and I think it's so. Um, if you look at the Zemmour vote, it was kind of interesting, actually, that he got, I think, 7% across the country in the end, which is... Um, very very low um mm. but um compared to where he'd been but it was kind yeah. of evenly spread though all the same you know he got about yeah. i think six percent in my village uh, and he got similar in rural france he got eight percent maybe in the poor in the richer areas of of the big cities uh, so his his offer is much more uh, attractive i think to parts of the elite as i was saying earlier not mm. to, not to sort of popular france uh, exactly but um, can he shift that? I, I don't think he can. I, I think he is uh, finding not attractive to, to a lot of people um, who, who vote for Le Pen at the moment. I don't think Le Pen can survive either, frankly. I think that this is, will be the last time she is a serious candidate in the presidential election. I think there's going to be a lot of um, switching around, a lot of um, sorting into hats in the kind of J.K. Yeah. Rowling, Harry Potter um, <laughs> sense of the of the right in the next um sorting by hats into houses i should say in the next uh, four or five years i think the parliamentary elections come too early for the right i think they're going to yeah. be still very very divided between people still trying to cling to the republican and people who are still committed to le pen and people who are wanting the zamor movement to succeed finally i think they will find it very difficult to get any kind of a united front in time for june 12th june 19th and i think therefore they will end up taking less seats than their support in the electorate um suggests that they should i think that the left might have more success in in seems to be having a bit more success in forming yeah. an alliance um yeah. melanchon is quite capable of destroying that unity before june the 12th he's also already doing so by putting out uh, uh, posters assuming that the whole of the left is now behind him, which is a sort of uh, imposture, really. I mean, he says that the, the votes that came to Ma- Ma- Macron at the weekend were only being lent to him for tactical mm. reasons, and they were really left-wing votes, but he doesn't admit that the 22% he got in the first round was also at least half yeah. taken from other left-wing candidates. Mm. They're not people who naturally support Mélenchon. They're people who were going to vote green or more more communist maybe and also more centre-left and moved into him in the hope of pushing and almost did push a left-wing candidate into the second round so i don't believe that the whole of the french left is yet melanchonist in that sense and therefore there's going to be divisions also on the left before the elections in june and i think for that reason the the macron centre camp which is not without divisions of its own but probably will provide a, a more united front will do quite well in those elections. They won't do as well as they did last time. I think they yeah. may scramble to get a majority, but I think they will get a majority. And I think that the failure of Le Pen in those elections will also damage her again. And I think then is when the, the sort of movement will begin to try and rebuild the nationalist right. Um, and it's going to be not easy. And I think the idea 
that the working class who support Le Pen will naturally switch over to a, a, a right wing movement, which is Zamorist or or or, um, or uh, Marionist, um, is is probably wrong. I think a lot of those people who vote Le Pen at the moment would probably be more attracted to a kind of Mélenchon sort of offer than to a Zamor offer mm. in the future. I do hope BuzzFeed one day publish a a Hogwarts uh, which house in Hogwarts are you in French politics quiz uh, that'd be quite funny sorting out who who's going to mean the slivering house of Eric Zimmer. Um Jorge. Yeah, let's uh, turn to Jean Luc Mélenchon now. I mean, um, Jean Luc Mélenchon uh, this time came even. Uh, he, he narrowly missed his chance to be in the runoff. He came closer to um, to getting into the runoff than he did in, in 2017. He got 21% of the vote, which was um, uh, about one point, a little bit over one point below Marine Le Pen. He did very well, obviously, in the um, kind of immigrant uh, dense uh, outskirts of Paris, but he did very well as well in the in the southeast. Uh, and he's now calling... Uh, for the for the whole electorate to um, uh, to essentially put him on, on top in the, in the legislative race and to be selected as prime minister, um, does this election herald the consolidation of a third uh, block of um, left wing anti austerity and pro migration uh, politics in France, uh, Elizabeth? Um, I mean, in terms of a left wing you know, uh, pro-migration, anti, sort of anti-liberalism block. I mean, I think that that, <laughs> I think that that already exists to a certain extent. It just has been poorly organized or has been split up amongst, you know, amongst either a lot of different candidates or amongst, you know, unpopular, can- or, or sort of, you know, unpopular candidates have been put, put forward to, um, to represent them, such as, such as Anne uh, Hidalgo. Um, so I think, you know, I think that that, of course, already exists. Um, is Jean-Luc Mélenchon the one who's going to who's going to lead it forward or who's going to succeed in sort of turning it into an actual an actual block? You know, I have to say I have done. It's funny because I, I, I sort of more of my own personal friends, of course, are on the left and um, and and are, are yeah are, are sort of of that persuasion. But I've done less actual reporting on the left, right. um, so I have more kind of personal information versus sort of uh, gathered information, sort of methodically gathered information from my sources and that sort of thing. But um, I, my sort of. Uh, my instinct or my opinion is that, you know, the sort of gathering behind Jean-Luc Mélenchon that we saw was a little bit um, kind of more the effects of the collapse of the traditional party system into these sort of movements Mm. with um, very big sort of larger than life, you know, charismatic personalities at the front of them, which is what we are seeing now at the national level in French politics, which is, you know, these personalities that are able to sort of get through the media uh, fervor and get attention and sort of, you know, establish a name for themselves. So I think that's part of it. And I think that that sort of combines with the vote utile effect, as John, you know, as John mentioned before, that you had, you know, you had Jean-Luc Mélenchon getting uh, 22% in the first round, yeah. but were all those voters really Jean-Luc Mélenchon voters or mm. were some of them, you know, old Socialist Party voters who would have liked to vote for somebody else but felt mm. that, that that vote would be uh, would be wasted. And mm. so I, yeah, I would tend to think that, um, that once again, that that sort of showing in the election masked um, much more sort of complicated picture and whether it will solidify behind Jean-Luc Mélenchon, I, I'm a little bit skeptical about that. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, of course, not to mention the fact that he was uh, not um, uh, seconded by uh, a whole host of other uh, left wing candidates, Philippe Boutou, Nathalie Artaud, uh, Fabien Roussel. Uh, John, is is this, um, as, as Elizabeth just said, do you um, do you see this uh, left wing bloc consolidating in future races? Well, yeah, Mélenchon clearly has a huge opportunity. Uh, I mean, you know, the fact that people switch to you is, is, and you can sort of claim to have that sign of support is obviously something politicians you know, that's what they dream of, having having that kind of uh, opportunity. Mélenchon is, I think, the greatest orator in, in yeah. French politics at the moment. Yeah. He's a very, very powerful performer in in, in, in the flesh. Um, I, you know, I've seen him over many years. He's an extremely disagreeable man, and, you know, he could yeah. cause a quarrel in a room in which only he was present. Uh, and he's, he's hated by the <laughs> other left-wing leaders, and he's going out his way now, I think, to... to, to he seems to me to be heading in the direction that he always does, which is having 
united suddenly he breaks it apart and uh, putting out these posters saying that I'm going to be the prime minister, that there's a, a front populaire behind me which hasn't yet been agreed, when there's no agreement yet with the communists or the greens or the party socialist on, on how that would be split up between their different candidates and what kind of platform he would run on. Uh, the fact that he is uh, has a lot of baggage himself as a sort of Putin, not exactly a fellow traveller, but a Putin defender, uh, anti-NATO, anti-EU, all, all those things mean that there isn't really a single left-wing block ideologically, um, and, and Mélenchon may not be the right person to try and pull one together. So I'm suspicious about whether the idea that there is going to be a united left front at these elections can work. They have an opportunity. I think they may end up with quite a big block of votes, of seats. But uh, the idea of him being the next prime minister, I think, is full of birds. And I, I want to um, um, mm. add to John's argument here, because I was um, looking up the, the numbers for the 2017 election. Um, in many ways, it feels like he's exactly in the same spot he was five years ago, where he is by far the most dominant force in French politics. He once again managed to get a kind of snowballing of tactical votes behind him at the last minute to crush his opponents. You know, Benoit Mons at 6%, um, there was no green candidate. He was basically the only strength on the left, unless obviously you consider Macron back then to be more of a, of a, of a leftist than he is nowadays. But, and then between 2017 and 2022, he has completely failed to build a kind of larger coalition partly because of personal reasons, partly because of political reasons. Um, and he's lost basically every election there has been since 2017. And, and not, not just no loss, he got crushed in every single one of them. So I'm wondering whether this just is simply a repeat of that, where he got a bit, not lucky, but you know, the, the, the format of a presidential election works best for him and his party. And then once momentum of this kind of falls down, he actually might might also suffer. Yes, um, I'll speak briefly so Elizabeth can comment on that as well. There's another thing I think also, Francois, that he scares people on the right as well, Mélenchon. Mm. And I think a strong yeah. Mélenchon run, or even a mediumly strong Mélenchon run, could bring a lot of right-wing votes, moderate right-wing votes, into, into the Macron camp yeah. um, in these elections. That's another reason why I think the Macron camp, if they can keep themselves together, which is not a given, um, should may do better than people think. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think Mélenchon is not um, a leader of people in the immediate sense. You know, he doesn't. He isn't someone that can bring together coalitions very well. Mm -hmm. He's someone that can inspire people. He is a very. He is a very good speaker. He has a sort of very strong uh, ideological line. Uh, but the fact that he is so much associated with a kind of not, not pro-Islam, but a kind of very friendly towards Islam, and some people suggest friendly towards radical mm. Islam point of view, yeah. uh, annoys and, and angers and, and uh, upsets, uh, worries a lot of people on the left, never mind people on the right. So there are a lot of reasons why that alliance will be a very difficult one. And if it starts to be successful, will, I think, bring right-wing votes onto the Macron side in the hope that Macron can fight off any possibility of a Mélenchon yeah. prime minister. The party of order. Elizabeth, any thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I would generally I would generally agree with that. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think he had an opportunity to, um, you know, to sort of consolidate some kind of an opposition in the last five years. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't capable of doing that. And, and yes, I, you know, I, I, of course, allow that he is a, he is a very talented orator and he, you know, and, and all of that. But I think, as John alluded to, I think, you know, there are a lot of people who are sort of you know center left or even sort of left left who don't you know who who, who think that he's a who think that he's a blowhard or you know that he you know some of his in terms of sort of cultural leftism or cultural liberalism he he still tends to make a lot of sort of awkward you know awkward comments yeah. about um about multiculturalism or about you know about about jews in france and, and yeah. that sort of thing so i don't think that he um i don't think that that term, yeah, yeah. he would he mm -hmm. yeah that, i don't think it's 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 so likely mm -hmm. Well, let's turn to um, uh, Macron's uh, second term, which is what's immediately ahead of us. Um, what will what will this second term look like? I mean, um, obviously the campaign was uh, markedly short on on details. Uh, Macron wasn't really uh, campaigning uh, on kind of any sort of 
perspective uh, proposals uh, that he had. He was um, most, mostly just kind of um, uh, content um, defending his record. Uh, he hinted, though, at a new governing method. He has also hinted at a possible uh, referendum on his um, uh, pension reform. Um, will will the second term of Macron be more of the same, or what, what kind of changes do you envision, John? Yeah, you know, it's going to be different. Uh, that's for sure. I think, he, you know, one hopes, and I think he has learned from some of the mistakes he made in, in the first, um, in his first five years. Um, I, I, he he would it would be sensible of him to accept that he's being elected by. A, a, partly a left-wing electorate and, and not just abandon them once he, he reaches power. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what that actually means in practice. But I, I think, you know, before you can really say what the Macron second term will be like, first you need to see whether he gets a majority in the parliamentary elections. Assuming he does that, which I think he probably will, but maybe quite yeah. a, a narrow one. This is going to be a, a, a terrible two, three, four, five years, I think, for all Western governments. You know, we're heading, I think, into... The Ukraine war not yet even over. I think the economy is heading for a real crisis. Uh, some of the things that Macron has promised in this second term, like continuing to reduce unemployment down to 5% to full employment, right. to put the French budget deficit back to 3% of GDP, all those things are going to be impossible, I think, in the next five years if the economy goes as bad as, as the world economy and therefore the right. French economy goes as badly as people fear. So he is, I think, riding for a fall in a way. I mean, he, his, first, his first term was actually, in many ways, despite all the crises, quite successful in doing some of the things he said he was going to do. Not the pensions reform, he had to pull that, obviously, because of COVID. But, you know, unemployment did come down quite sharply. Some of that is to his credit. Some of it was what was happening more widely in the economy of the world. This time he's going to be faced with much more difficult headwinds, even despite, you know, all the problems he had in the first term from COVID and Ukraine war and Julie Jones and so on, I think he may be heading into a very, very difficult five years. So, you know, the previous examples of second terms in French presidents have been rather poor, you know, Mitterrand yeah, have kind of lost the plot really in their second terms. Macron is a much younger man. He will be trying much harder, I think, to, to, to try and achieve some of the things he's, he's promised to achieve from the beginning, but it's going to be very tough for him. Yeah. Yeah, I was, going to also going, I was also going to say um, um, on the legislative election, I think if you go back since the start of the Fifth Republic, when you have legislative election following the presidential election, the French, I think, still remain monarchists at heart, and they want the newly elected king to have you know, the power to actually do what he promised to do. And even in 2017, when Macron had no party, fresh-faced, um, faced against established parties, got complete unknowns elected. You know, the joke back then was you could have um, put a goat with a Macron um, sticker slapped on his face and he probably would have been elected. Um, so I'm, I'm not too worried for him in the legislative election. But you know, anything can happen. But if we go by precedence, I don't think there will be too much of a change here. And Elizabeth, what do you um, what do you think is in store for them in this uh, second? <laughs> well, of course, you know, I, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm in Berlin now. I lived in France for a long time, but I'm now in Berlin, and we are, um, we are, of course, right next to the Polish border, and we are not far away from the Ukrainian mm. border. So everything thing feels quite urgent here, and mm. um, you know, not only is the war not over, but it doesn't, you know, it, it seems like much of the next couple of years is going to be dominated um, for Macron and for France by by the war, by, a, you know, European Union, by defense issues, by, um, you know, also inflation and supply chain, you know, things related related to that and the sort of ener energy issues, that kind of thing. So I imagine that that will, you know, those will be very, very urgent and taking up much, much, much of a Macron's time uh not just in the short term, but probably probably in the longer term. Um, and then secondly, of course, you know, when Macron uh, ran in uh, for the first time in 2017, he, you know, he was coming sort of more freshly out of the Parti Socialiste. Mm -hmm. um, he had a little bit more of a uh, leftist kind of bent on cultural issues. He, of course, you know, uh, talked about uh, the crimes of colonization um, and, and that kind of thing. And then once he was in office, he has, you know, I think the consensus is that he has governed, um, you know, much more sort of 
uh, on the right uh, in terms of, of cultural issues and some of these, you know, some of these like some of these initiatives that we've seen, uh, uh, law against separatisme and that sort of thing, mm. which have, have have certainly sort of rankled his uh, left wing voters. And 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 one of the, you know, one of the um, one of the sort of things that gets overlooked about um, the vote on Sunday, just this past Sunday, the second round vote, is that the abstention rates in the second round in the banlieues, and um, yeah. I saw one chart actually looking at abstentions among uh, among Muslim voters in the second round was extremely high, yeah. um, which just shows that they have, you know, French French Muslims have, have I don't want to make generalizations, but probably a lot of them have sort of lost confidence or are unhappy with, yeah. with the way that Macron has governed. And since he will not yeah. be facing uh, re-election uh, pressures in the next uh, uh, five years from now, he you know, he has an opportunity to um, potentially offer, make a sort of culturally leftist offer that has been missing um, in in France in the yeah. last five years. And this is something that a lot of people on the left have been talking about, uh, you know, ideas about, um, you know, presenting a more sort of inclusive idea about um, how France, uh, uh, sort of inclusive idea about cultural, cultural politics, cultural identity of how France could move forward. So he would have an opportunity potentially to do that. Um, I don't want to be overly optimistic that he will, yeah. but um, but he could, and I think that we should, you know, we should look for that. Yeah, and obviously, one of the first signs of that will be his next prime minister, which uh, it's fair to say nobody knows who that's going to be. The speculation on this has been extraordinary. I think basically every woman in French politics has been um, floated as an option. Um, basically, mm. and even a retired woman in French politics have been floated. So that'll be, I guess, a first sign of um, whether he wants to maybe tack a little bit to his left. But Elizabeth, you're you're in um, in Berlin right now. Um, yes, yes. Is it fair to say that in the current state of European politics, Macron is basically the last leader standing? Um, you know, is there anyone else? that will be able to be his equal at the European level? Well, you know, I, of course, there has been a lot of sort of hand wringing about about the German government, both in its current form and sort of the lingering effects of previous German uh, administrations. And I think, you know, I think that's fair. But I think also that you are seeing, you know, I think you're seeing Schultz being pushed and I think you're seeing the German government being pushed and they're just, you know, I think by nature, they're just reluctant to, to act and to make dramatic actions. But you are seeing pressure on them now to, you know, continue sending weapons to Ukraine to, uh, to curtail, you know, oil, uh, oil sale, uh, oil, purchasing oil from, from Russia and that sort of thing. So though it seems that the German government is sort of uh, shaky and uncertain and moves one direction and then moves in the other direction and needs to be pressured constantly. I think that I think that they shouldn't be um, that they shouldn't be discounted. So and of course, you know, I mean, of course, Macron has great weight as a sort of diplomatic mm. presence and he's very active. He's very visible. He's very uh, audible. <laughs> but mm. in the end, you know, Germany is. Um, is a larger economy it is um you know that it is at the center of sort of energy uh energy politics um and also within the german government you have the um the green party which is part of the governing coalition and which um you know annalena barbach is the foreign minister yeah. she has been much more sort of assertive even aggressive uh, about um, about uh, about both energy policy and you know uh, defense policy uh, with regards to Ukraine and um, and so I wouldn't I don't know I wouldn't um, I wouldn't discount I wouldn't discount the Germans quite yet. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, John, can, can can Macron be a great European leader um, that will leave a proud mark on 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 the EU? You know, to the extent that we think of. Maybe someone like Adenauer or Mitterrand. Uh, yes, and I think he probably thinks he can, and I think he, he obviously is now, having been re-elected and having already, in some ways, foreshadowed in some of the things he's had in in the first term and even before he was elected where, about where Europe should go. He's been proved to be right uh, to, to to many uh, in in. in 
to some extent about the need for for a sort of thinking Europe that it defends its own position in the world both militarily and diplomatically and um, has a sense of, of a kind of European sovereignty um, to defend its position against the rest of the world, not just against China and Russia, but implicitly against the United States. So all those things have moved in his direction. But I agree with Elizabeth that finally, uh, you know, I think Schultz will emerge as, as, as a strong leader in Europe as well, just partly because as, as leader of Germany, he has to. Um, yeah. Also, I think there's a kind of resistance within the European 27 to anyone who wants or says or assumes that he, is, he or she is the leader. I think one of the reasons why Merkel was so successful in being the leader in Europe was because she was such a diffident leader. You know, she didn't sort of right. force herself on Europe in that sense. And I think if Macron tries to do that, there will be a lot of resistance to him. Uh, so he has to play that carefully. He certainly has to form a strong alliance with Schultz. That's the only way he can really move forward on any of the things he wants to move forward on. But I think he, he, he already, I think, is... Um, a significant figure in, in the history of the European Union and will continue to be it, but he needs to play it carefully. Okay, I think it's a good place to wrap this up. Um, thank you for both of you for a um, deep dive on the French election and I think more importantly the, the state of the French political landscape and maybe the, the near future of the French political landscape. Thank you so much to both of you. Special thanks to our, all our listeners. This is our last episode of the season before we take a bit of an um, early summer break, but we'll be back in September. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks a lot, Elizabeth. Thanks very much for having me. And um, to our listeners, I, I was going to say see you next week, but no, see you next September. Then. So, dear listeners, um, especially long-time listeners of this podcast, we all know that we usually start with our debrief and then usually end with some housekeeping. Let us just... For this one episode, change a little bit of format and start with the housekeeping because, as you know, this is our season finale and we wanted to make sure you'd all be with us to listen to the kind of internal housekeeping for the future of the, of the um, podcast. Yeah, and uh, Zach, let, let's take a, a little moment here to kind of go over some of the um, uh, future projects that we have in store. This is, as you said, unfortunately, the season finale uh, both yourself, Francois, and myself have been uh, incredibly busy of late. Uh, we've got, uh, unfortunately, limited uh, kind of leeway to um, uh, to commit to this podcast. And uh, this has been um, really, a, a, you know, a, a big time commitment. And uh, unfortunately, now we're going to be busy with our uh, job hunt. Uh, on, on my end, I'm also working on a thesis at uh, UHSS, a, a school in Paris. So that's going to keep me very busy in the next couple of months or so. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to be very much missing our, our listeners in the next um, few months before we take up uh, the new season again in September. But we, uh, we just thought we'd give, uh, would, uh, share uh, a word about some of our future projects. As always, we are encouraging everyone and all to uh, join us on Patreon. This is a really good way for you to support the show if you find yourself coming back every week to uh, listen to our episodes. This is a very easy way for you to show your support, which is by donating as little as uh, you can, or as little or as much as you can to our show through Patreon. Um, we're also uh, toying with the idea of uh, launching a Clubhouse series of regular meetings. We're also uh, 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 considering uh, uh, launching a book club. So as you, as you can see, there, is, um, there are many projects that we have coming in the pipeline all of which are, are exciting, uh, but which will have to wait uh, a, 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 few, a few months before uh, you get to hear more about them. Yeah, so stay tuned for all of that. And in the meantime, if you like the podcast, you can obviously join us on Patreon. But one of the great things you can also do if you can't afford the, um, you know, the, the sandwich a month, essentially, is share the podcast with a friend, you know, share it wide, share it largely with all friends who would be interested in French politics and European politics and, and all of that. So, you know, make sure that this season finale um, blows up a little to have good momentum for our comeback. Um, anyways, okay, on to the debrief. So, Francois, our chat with Elizabeth Zorowski of New York Times Magazine and John Litchfield of uh, Politico and several other publications is now over. They're both out. Uh, what did you think about this wide-ranging conversation uh, and debrief on the 
runoff uh, of the French presidential race. Yeah, it's interesting to have this kind of outsider perspective. Um, I, we didn't think of that when we, we put together the episode, but obviously neither John nor Elizabeth are French. I am, of course, and, and John lives in Normandy. So and, and Elizabeth has been covering French politics for, for a little while now. So we're not inviting complete strangers to French politics, but it's a bit of a um, interesting outside point of view. Um, Elizabeth was talking about a concept which I think is quite interesting, um, which um, I gather she took from uh, her conversation with Marion, Marion Maréchal. Yeah, yeah, really good. Well, her article is, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Um, she talks about the bloc populaire. And that's a word I think Marion Maréchal uses now, but comes from a poster called Jérôme Saint-Marie, who published, I think, four years ago or something, a book called Bloc contre Bloc. And essentially the thesis was France is more divided along class lines than it has politically, than it has ever been in its history. Even when there was a strong communist party in the 1980s, it did not have the kind of appeal within kind of working class voters than Le Pen has nowadays. And so it's really interesting. He goes through the kind of sociology and and uh, electoral maps and stuff like that and says all the people who's been telling us that class doesn't matter actually have been saying it when it matters most um he goes back to kind of historical analogy with um with uh, louis philippe um louis philippe was the um orleanist king between 1830 and 1848 and he essentially took power in a revolution that ousted his more reactionary um legitimist cousins and he was put to the throne by kind of coalition of centre-left, um, en bourgeoisie, of, you know, bourgeois former revolutionaries uh, on the left, and by the kind of moderate royalists on the centre-right. It was a kind of coalition of the centre-right and centre-left who had been divided over the French Revolution for a long time. And he says that um, Emmanuel Macron essentially is a kind of a modern reincarnation of Louis-Philippe, and has managed to kind of unite the centre-right and centre-left bloc, who have been divided for, 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 for centuries, for decades at least. And, um, and he says against this bloc élitaire, which Macron has created, um, there needs to be kind of a unified bloc populaire, which is essentially the theory that uh, Marine Le Pen has been pushing really hard, thinking she can create this kind of neither left nor right populist alliance, but obviously people on the left do not see it that way and very few actually have decided to um, to back her after um, in her runoff against Macron. So this is one one vision of French politics, which is bloc contre bloc. And there's another vision, which I think is actually, um, it, it's less, how could I say, it's, it's messier than the bloc contre bloc, but it's actually, I think, maybe a better representation, which is the archipelago theory of Jérôme Fourquet. He published a book, again, four or five years ago, called L'Archipel Francais, French Archipelago, where he argues that France is increasingly divided into different archipelagos. Um, there's, you know, archipelagos are kind of connected, but they're also kind of individual islands. And he's saying that there's less of a kind of a common denominator that exists. And he goes back at the names people have been giving to their kids. There's been a kind of a massive diversification the kind of historical French names have been um, less and less used over the past decades and we're going for a lot of Arabic names, a lot of um, American names, a lot of kind of strange made-up names, which is showing kind of an individualization of, uh, of, of even the family unit to some extent. And so he explains, you know, um, yes, there is a, maybe a kind of a bourgeois bloc around Macron and there's maybe a popular bloc uh, around um, Marine Le Pen, but it's so much more complicated. And, you know, the people in the, in the banlieue don't really fit that narrative. Um, so, yeah, it's a really, really interesting vision of French politics. And it was one of the bestsellers uh, when it got published. I think it was interesting to have kind of both visions in that conversation. Yeah, and I, I kind of, I just wanted to echo Elizabeth's uh, pushback against this idea of a two, two, uh, two-fold or two-way uh, partition of the French electorate. Uh, between this sort of elitist block and this popular block. I think the reality is a bit more complex and it looks more like a tripartite um, 
uh, uh, fragmentation of the electorate. Uh, you've got obviously the sort of the, as you as you just um, explained, the center right and center left coming together in this unified bourgeois bloc. Then you've got the right wing popular vote, and then you've got the um, um, the right uh, the the far left uh, popular vote uh, block, which is uh, Mélenchon's. Uh, kind of um, belt around Paris, right? Uh, he did uh, impressively well in pretty much every single outskirt uh, of Paris, uh, and particularly well among immigrant uh, communities. He did also rather well in the southeast for uh, reasons that are um, that are, I think a little bit more complex. Uh, but so I think it looks more like a, a tripartite uh, partition. And and at this point, I I'm, I think I'm going to sort of undermine my own argument, the, the argument I made in the episode, which was to um, you know, when I, when I asked, um, when I asked her guests, you know, is this, isn't this what's happening in America too? Isn't France going through the same kind of class and educational stratification? I mean, in, in America right now, you kind of have the same thing happening with the democratic party increasingly cohering around the coastal elite kind of, uh, electorate and the Republican party, uh, representing the more sort of working class, uh, reactionary um, base of of, um, of America, and um, and I think uh, I, I think you're you're seeing part of part of that is happening in France. I mean, part of the stratification is along class and educational attainment lines. If you look at the uh, if you look at um, the election data on uh, how many years of school, how many years of uh, post back uh, education uh, Marine Le Pen's voters had gotten as opposed to Macron's voters, it was a it was a stark contrast. I mean, Macron, uh, Macron was definitely the uh, candidate of the more highly educated um, uh, segment of the electorate. Um, but um, but yeah, I think uh, I think um, um, you know I, I, I'm also really looking forward to the legislative race. We'll we'll have to see if the uh, right wing parties are able to run a single ticket and thus consolidate the, the popular bloc, uh, what Zemmour calls uh, l'Union nationale or le camp national. Um, and um, yeah, we'll we'll um, we'll see we'll see what happens. I, I want to talk a little bit about. Um... Um, Marine Le Pen and her, her runoff um, performance. We all remember that back in 2017, um, when she made it to the runoff against Macron, she ended up shooting herself massively in the foot against uh, Macron. I'm saying this because we didn't talk about the, the debate this time. The reason we didn't talk about the debate this time is because it was meh, bland. She, she, she didn't do very well, I thought. I thought Macron was, was a lot better than she was. Um, Macron also did this, this very tactful thing um, where he managed to actually make it seem like she was the, um, not the incumbent, but she had something to defend. She had a, um, uh, un bilan, how do you say a bilan? Um, a balance sheet. Yeah, she, she, she had a balance sheet to, to, to defend. And, and Macron was the outgoing president, but it feels like she had to defend her vote in Parliament. She had to defend this and this, and she hardly attacked Macron on anything during his 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 term, which I thought was strange. But more generally, she went again for this kind of strategy of the reserve. The reserve of votes are going to be well, it's going to be on the on the left, and therefore I need to make sure I send them a lot of kind of um, signals to that electorate. So they vote, vote for me. In the end, she got, I think, 12% of the Jean-Luc Mélenchon vote. Yeah. Um, I think something like 35% voted Macron and the rest abstained or um, did a blank vote. Um, 12% is, is not great. And the reason she got 12% is because for the past two weeks, Jean-Luc Mélenchon has been saying, not a vote to Le Pen, not a vote to Le Pen, not a vote to Le Pen, not a vote to Le Pen. And so in the end, I think that, that worked and she, 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 she didn't get much. But it actually begs the question of how would she be able to win a runoff? Because sure, she's made progress since 2017. And you probably you could probably argue that she should have been at 42% five years ago uh, without a kind of catastrophic uh, runoff performance. But how, how would she make it to 50% plus one? And I think at some point she has to manage to talk to a kind of more bourgeois white right-wing electorate because it seems that left-wing voters even if they have kind of agreements on the platform 
will never quite accept to vote for Le Pen for kind of cultural reasons, I guess. They can't just, um, they can't accept that they'll vote for Le Pen for different reasons. But I, and, I, um, and yeah, so no, the, the theory that she'll keep rising and rising and rising, maybe it's true. I think generally the, the trend has been in Europe that, you know, populist right parties have been increasing. Um, I was reading in Unheard, I think, um, uh, someone making a case that essentially the, the strongest correlation for for populist right parties is the um, the number of expected uh, the expected share of Muslims in the population yeah. in twenty thirty, yeah. which is actually I think apparently a pretty neat correlation. Yeah. The, um, and yeah, words, I, I, you know, France being being France, that's definitely something that's going to keep uh, driving um, the far right over the next few years. Yeah. But I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not sure mechanically she's going to get a 50 plus one. I don't, I don't think, I think she has at some point to accept she needs to, she needs to exert her leadership or someone has to exert his or her leadership on the right wing landscape because I'm not sure this um, slightly quixotic appeal to the left is going to be enough.